Today's episode of No-Till Flowers is brought to you by Farmer's Friend. It's no secret that almost everything grows better in a tunnel. Bring the benefits of greenhouse production to your veggie or flower farm in an affordable and easy-to-assemble package from Farmer's Friend Caterpillar Tunnel Kits. They're quick to build and move, come in a variety of styles and sizes, and include everything you need to make installation a breeze. Can attest to this, I own two of these tunnels myself, and they are super easy to put up and take down as needed. Plus, if you order two or more tunnels of any size, you'll get free shipping on your entire order. Also, be sure to check out Farmer's Friends' growing selection of small farm tools and supplies like the pyro weeder, silage tarps, landscape fabric, row covers, shade cloth, irrigation kits, and more. If you are ready to increase efficiency on your farm and earn higher profits with less work, visit FarmersFriend.com today. Today's show is also brought to you by Growing for Market Magazine. Want to know the top 10 most profitable flowers to grow on a limited acreage? How to manage a greenhouse for cut flowers? Or how to structure a profitable farm business? Learn all of that and more by subscribing to Growing for Market Magazine. Founded by the flower farmer author, Lynn Bozinski, Growing for Market is celebrating 30 years of helping local food and flower growers succeed with articles written by industry leaders like Elliot Coleman, Aaron Benzikane, and Jean-Martin Fortier. By farmers, for farmers. Plus, subscriptions start at only $30 per year. Whether you do farmer's markets, local wholesaling, a CSA, or dream of starting a farm, check them out today at growingformarket.com. Request a free sample print or digital copy from the website, and podcast listeners can get a new subscriber discount of 25% off when using the code SOIL when subscribing at growingformarket.com. Again, that code is SOIL. And I want to throw in just a personal off-script plug here to say how much I value my own subscription to Growing for Market. Editor Andrew and his team put together a fantastic collection of articles for each issue. There's always flower-related content, but to be honest, I find the stories about employee management and small farm equipment and so many other topics just as valuable. So that's a big two thumbs up for me here, personally. All right, put in your earbuds, pour a cup of tea, or put on your work gloves. It's time for the No-Till Flowers podcast. As always, I'm your nerdy host, Jenny Love of Love and Fresh Flowers. I created this podcast to drill into the details of truly natural farming, be it no-till or biostimulants or whatever, as it relates to flower farming. I felt like there was a void in the industry for this kind of information. And since I'm in my third season of no-till here on my farm and I still have lots of questions, I thought this podcast would be a great way for me to ask those questions and hopefully get some good answers from our guests. So let's get started. Who better to start this podcast series dedicated to no-till flower farming than Tony Gates from Bear Mountain Farm? Tony is really what I consider the forebearer of no-till flower farming um, and just a general leader in the floral industry in terms of natural farming processes. He's been personally a great inspiration to me in terms of Korean natural farming, something that felt very daunting to me when looking from the outside in towards all these vegetable growers um, and growers in Hawaii who were using KNF. But as a a small-scale flower farmer, I felt really intimidated and wasn't sure where to start. Thanks to Tony and his wife, Denise, and their amazing YouTube channel, which you should totally check out, Bear Mountain Farm um, on YouTube. They have 
phenomenal resources that are really easy to digest and get into for uh, Korean natural farming and also no-till flower methods. In fact, Tony and Denise inspired one of my favorite no-till flower farming techniques, which is no-till tulips and other bulbs. So check that out if you get a chance. And one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to Tony in particular is that I feel like um, one of the biggest hiccups in no-till farming is that sometimes people think they can just stop tilling and then the soil will spring to life and everything will be hunky-dory from there. And then they won't see those immediate improvements and want to give up. I know that I sort of had that experience myself when I was in season two of no-till and I was actually having lower production than when I was tilling. And I thought, well, gosh darn it why? Why is this happening? And then I realized it's because the soil biology has not come back yet. And I turned to Tony's YouTube and learned so much about uh, Korean natural farming applications. And through that, implementing KNF at my farm, I have seen the soil biology leap forward. And I'm so glad that Tony provided that resource. So for um, this episode, we're going to talk a lot about KNF and how to implement it into your farming model. And we're also going to talk a little bit about life, get a little bit philosophical, talk about how COVID has impacted things in the floral industry, um, and just generally have a really nice, nerdy conversation, which I'm so excited about. So let's get started now. Okay, today I am so excited to talk to Tony Gates from Bear Mountain Farm, who is one of my personal heroes in the flower farming world. Um, not to embarrass you, Tony, but um, you've been such an inspiration to me over the years, both you and Denise, uh, your partner, your wife, Denise, and I am um, just, I've, I owe so much of my own farming experimentation uh, to you and the fact that you've experimented so much and learned so much. So welcome, Tony. I'm so excited to have this chat. Well, thank you for the kind words. Uh, I feel uh, I'm, I'm always glad when I, I can help somebody out, you know, and that's Denise and I both feel that way. If we can do something within our realm of, you know, passing it on forward to other folks and, and make, uh, you know, somebody's life maybe a little easier or help people kind of you know, understand maybe some of the things we've gone through. It's, it's, it's always a pleasure. Oh, good. That really shows through with um, both of you guys throughout the years. And I think it's one of the most um, valuable pieces of the floral industry of the, of the flower farming industry, at least is how um, just community oriented our, our kind is <laughs> and how we all seem to very generously share knowledge and, and help each other out. So it's, it's one of the things because of growers like you, when I first started, I saw your generosity of spirit and it really helped me develop that same generosity of spirit, which is ultimately what inspired this podcast, honestly, is to, is to share, to pay it forward, to share it forward. So it's oh, a full circle today. It's, it's really exciting. So um, why don't you tell me first a little bit about your farm and where you're located exactly, uh, what kind of growing zone you're in, and, and I think your, your climate's more moderate than mine. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, we're uh, about 60 miles from the Pacific Ocean in the Willamette Valley of Oregon. And um, our climate here is a zone, a USDA zone 8B. 
And we're kind of uh, on the edge of the Willamette Valley where you start heading up into the foothills of the Cascades. So where, where we're at is um, it's very temperate in, in, in a sense that we rarely get long freezing events in the winter. Um, we do get freezing events. They do happen, but they're usually pretty short-lived, a few days. And most of the time, um, our, our winter temperatures, as an example, will average in the 40 daytime temps and maybe mid-30s, uh, you know, at nighttime. Um, we don't consistently, you know, like some some areas, we're not like a Minnesota, you know, where we're, <laughs> we're, once it freezes, it doesn't thaw till June, you know, that's not the issue here. Um, so we have um, a lot of rainfall, relatively speaking. Um, it's probably, I guess, for our, just where we're at, we're probably getting somewhere 25 to 30 inches of rain a year, roughly. Um, although, you know, official records uh, make it seem like, you know, that's not a terrible amount of rain, but we get a lot of cloudy days. So we're, we're yeah. a maritime uh, kind of climate, similar to like uh, South um, Southwest England, kind of like where Charles Dowding area is, kind of like that. Yeah, yeah. And right. in the summertime, though, we're a little different. Um, we definitely go Mediterranean in summer. We After about the end of June, we typically stay dry until the middle of September. Oh, wow. Um, and so, yeah, no having no rainfall at all during that period of time is not unusual. Huh. Um, most, of the, most of the daytime temps um, on average are about in the mid-80s. Uh, though we do get hot spells where we can go as high as the low hundreds, but that's kind of a rare thing too. So it's like the extremes in our climate are kind of rare. And then, so this makes a really great growing area um, because we don't have such extremes. And um, there's actually quite a few people now that are flower farming in the Willamette Valley. And um, uh, there's a few farms just down the road from us that, that many people who are part of the ASCFG probably know about. <laughs> right. Uh, I don't want to name names because I don't want to put anybody, you know, in yeah, the spot. But yeah. there's just a, it's just a really great growing area. Um, our farm itself is uh, total acreage is 10 acres, but we, we have been kind of shrinking down over the last uh, number of years. We never were at full 10 acres. Our, our most that we had in field growing was about a little less than two acres. And we have um, approximately, we have five hoop houses that are, you know, they're each approximately about 1,500 square feet apiece. So they're not super huge. Um, and we use those for early spring or late fall flower uh, type things. And um, the mostly, um, we're not really heavy duty on perennials. Um, there's a, a great farm just south of us that, that really has super lots of all kinds of perennials of all kinds. So we tend to kind of go with um, the annual side of things from bulbs in the spring um, through um, many of the, what you'd say were normal uh, type of um, bouquet floral flowers and things of that nature. And um, we also raise a fair amount of greens. Um, Cenadranium type stuff, um, Dusty Miller's. Okay, okay, annual greens. Yeah, 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 and eucalyptus. We have eucalyptus in there too, hypericums and things of that nature. Um, so it's not a whole lot, you know, we're not heavy on that way. So we tend to be very seasonal in a sense that our season runs from typically we'll start harvesting anemones in 
right around maybe just a little bit before Valentine's Day, and then uh, their season ends pretty much right around Thanksgiving or sooner, depending on when our, our freezing weather hits. And that's kind of where where we're at. So I guess you know if you want to look at it, it runs about forty weeks out of the, out of the year, roughly. Okay. Yeah, that's a good long season. Yeah. Yeah. And if, do you could you grow through the winter if you wanted to, like in terms of you're such a mild climate that you could try to push through? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I think you know, and when we first started out in our younger years, we 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 were kind of heading that way, trying to do that. Um, but one of the, the issues that we ran into without a climate control greenhouse is um, you need supplemental light um, because yep. a lot of things, they just, they're not going to bloom well when you get down. We're at a, we're at a 44 or almost 45, 45th parallel uh, where we're at. So we're kind of at the same level as like Portland, Maine. Oh, know, wow. You think about it from a, from a yeah. north north so our daylight drops pretty good when you're uh, get from about the middle of november until well, late january early february we're actually below once you get below like nine hours nine and a half hours you, you just don't get uh, the intensity of light and the length of light necessary to get a lot of good blooms on things so plants yeah. don't they just they just kind of really kind of slow down and they just kind of stay where they're at well, it's a, it's a good, you know, we should slow down too as farmers. That's kind of what I always think. Like, why, why push so hard? You know, they want to take a break. We should take a break. <laughs> yeah. You know, you do need, it's, it's like, you know, regeneration is important. Yes. <laughs> you do need, you do need to do that. <laughs> I, I know a lot of folks that are, that are, you know, young, young folks that are in this business. They're just pushing and pushing and pushing, you know, um, and it's great, you know, but yeah. it's like, you, it does come with a toll. <laughs> yes, it really does. It really does. So tell me, um, how many years have you been flower farming? And why did you choose flowers in the first place instead of veggies or something else that might have been more, um, you know, more of a straight path at the beginning? Yeah, I think, um, well, oh, the flower side of it to, to Denise, because that was her her passion and growing. I mean, we've always done gardens and things of that nature of vegetables and, you know, a lot of flowers and things like that before we started on this. Um, it was really in the early 2003, um, took a big professional change in my life because I had been in manufacturing for up to that point, up to 20 years. And um, the company that I worked for basically shipped the entire manufacturing process that I was involved in uh, to China. And so I opted to say goodbye instead of go spend time overseas. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of when we were looking around our place and said, well, you know, I mean, we were at a point where we could make a change. And that was in our early 40s when we did that. So we've been doing this since uh, I think 2003 was our first year. Wow, that's and, a long time. And yeah, yeah, I guess it has. Chief does well. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to rub it in. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. <laughs> no, I think it's fantastic. It's a great admiration to see somebody see a couple who have been doing this for so long, and it's your full time 
um, income. Yeah, we, we haven't killed each other, so right, you know, it's all yeah. worked out pretty good. <laughs> you're, you're inspirational. Your your longevity is inspirational. Take it as a as a compliment. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been it's been a fun ride. I mean, we started out in the farmers market. That's how we started selling. Okay, and and so we. Um, you know, that was really competitive and, and there'd been a number, uh, I mean, there's always been flower vendors in the farmer's market that we sold into, but when we started, there was only three of us, I think, and selling flowers at that time. So it was pretty good. But by the time we got to, um, oh, I guess it was roughly right around the time when the financial crisis hit mm, back yeah. in 2008, 2009, yeah. um, suddenly a lot of people that, you know, had to make changes in their life discovered that growing stuff and selling in a farmer's market was, was a pretty good way to go. And we suddenly had our last year when we were selling in the farmer's market, I think it was 2013, we had nine competitors in a market wow. of only 60, 60 vendors total. That, that's everybody, veg and wow. all that. So, and yeah, it, we were killing each other. <laughs> That, yeah, that's a crazy number of flower options at a farmer's market. I mean, I've never yeah. seen that many. I mean, I guess the market management wasn't trying to be uh, selective. <laughs> about no, the market, the market management was kind of um, a laissez-faire, you know, well, if you kill each other, the strongest survive. So it's probably good for the customer. <laughs> wow. Wow. But not good for the so, farmer. <laughs> no, no. So at that point, um, we we actually were, it's kind of serendipity. We were approached by uh, a young woman who was starting a florist shop. And that's kind of how we started selling to florists. So we started selling to her and then we kind of branched out and sold to other people and, and just started making direct sales to, to the florists. Uh, we never really went the wholesale route, uh, kind of, you know, dipped our toes into it, but didn't work right for us. Uh, we looked at maybe selling in Seattle with the wholesale yeah. market up there. And that one didn't, it didn't, it wasn't a good fit for for us and and so we kind of really began to realize that marketing for us was was trying to keep it as local to the farm as possible because part of it i guess is um you know how much time you have to dedicate to getting the flowers marketed or packaged and shipped and all that kind of stuff and yeah that was adding i mean it was just when we started the business we weren't looking to become you know big company with lots of employees and and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's a great, great thing. But what we were looking at is, no, this is just the two of us. It's our family farm. And that's kind of how we started to look at it and say, you know, we just need to take complexity out of things. And that's why we decided to focus basically on, you know, just the one channel selling directly locally, keeping it within. We do. We did sell um, up until the pandemic. We were selling some things in Portland, and that's about as far as we went. And that, that was about an hour and a half away from us to Portland, Oregon. Okay. And how many florists do you typically have on your run? Is there, or do you do you do it like a a a truck route, or do you take pre-orders? No, and then... no. Actually, it was all electronic. Um, we would contact the the florists and and say, "This is our, our availability." Uh, this week and they would say okay I'll take this 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 and this and this and that's kind of how we'd, we'd have the orders pre-filled okay basically nice. and then we, we'd take care of any kind of payment arrangements through like um, um, square okay you know just kind of yeah. kind of work it that way 
And so that kind of handled the invoicing and all that kind of stuff. And um, it, it really wasn't, a, we never really did a bucket run. Okay. And I mean, there's a few around here in the Valley that do that. And um, I, I just think uh, what we were trying to do is, is with a bucket run, you really got to have, at least this is what we felt, you really got to have, you know, a, a lot of extra stuff because you got to look like you're a traveling floral show in a sense. Right. <laughs> That's the right way of putting it. You, you don't want to, you don't want to get to the end of your bucket run and only saying, Oh, sorry, you're the last one on my list. And all I got is these four sunflowers left. Right. <laughs> you exactly. know, it's like, and, and so, you know, and, and what we were trying to do is, is part of that, being able to focus specifically on the customers and pre-order, then we could go out and we could really fine tune things better. So that was kind of our approach. Nice. And do you find that with COVID in particular, have your florist sales really dropped off and you had to come up with a new strategy or have you been able to maintain well, your sales over this season? Yeah. In our particular case, it's more our, our, the damage to us is, is done because of where we are in terms of health and what the risks are of COVID to us. Um, not to be out there too far in the weeds, but we both have what they call comorbidities or which sounds like a really bad word, but That's what terrible. it basically means is, <laughs> is yeah, you, 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 you may be a candidate for a bad outcome. Okay. Um, and usually um, this COVID stuff is, you know, if you're young and super healthy, 99% chance it's like, you're great. Right. But when uh, where we are is is both Denise and I are diabetics, and okay. she's had had some uh, health issues with um, blood platelets and things. Okay. And this is a a clotting thing. So anyway, to getting in the weeds anyway. But the basics of it is we had to scale our business back, even though the actual customers. I mean, there was a lockdown period here in Oregon for a couple um, months, basically middle of March till. Mm, I guess maybe middle of May, things started opening up again. Um, but a lot of florists, our customers, they went away from open shop walk-in business to um, they relied a lot on phone sales. Okay. You know, people would be, they, they actually saw their businesses go up, even though they lost weddings, you know, or funeral events or things of that nature, because, you know, people couldn't get together. They actually saw a huge boost in, um, Things like people just wanting to buy bouquets to say, to reach out and touch other people to say, hey, you know, I couldn't come to your birthday party, but, you know, here or, uh, you, you know what I'm saying? So they actually oh, yeah. were, were very busy. And one uh, lady we were selling to, she said she had the best Mother's Day she she's ever had. She had just huge yeah. numbers of orders, yeah. but everything was contactless. So it, it was they would you know, take the orders, they put it all together and then they would just go and deliver it and just kind of like, kinda like yeah. Well, yeah, ring the bell and run. <laughs> <laughs> I um, love that kind but, of delivery. I love ringing the bell and running. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. it, it, it really, uh, and it's been running that way pretty strong all year. And um, there's been some other folks like um, uh, Lady Up the Road uh, in um, towards McMinnville up that way she's been running her own shop where she she was she was kind of doing the same thing in a sense that she was getting business in and then she was delivering it out to like uh 
you know, individuals or individuals would come out to her, um, her farm. Um, but unfortunately for us, what, what this whole COVID thing did for us is it really shaved our business back. Um, you know, I don't know if that's going to end up being a permanent thing or, okay. or what, or how this is going to work out. But yeah, for us, it, 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 it wasn't, it wasn't a good thing for us. I'm sorry to hear that. I didn't realize that. Well, I, I am glad that it, the younger people, it didn't, I was concerned, you know, when this thing started saying, well, we knew what our personal situation is, but younger people, you know, they got a lot, a lot to build forward to. And I guess my concern was when this thing hit is, is that it was going to like really, you know, do a lot of damage to people who just spent a lot of money getting started, you know, and, and then just have to fold it wouldn't be good. Yeah. I, I was worried about that too for our industry. If you'd asked me in March how it was going to go, I would have I would have uh, cringed severely. But it turned out to be almost a blessing in disguise. I mean, not obviously not for everyone, but there's been so much more interest in flowers now, and I think we'll see even more new flower farmers. I think as a result because of it. So you know, things things change. But maybe you guys can be um, even bigger YouTube stars than you are already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't income. know about. Yeah, yeah, I, I, we always kind of joke about that. And we put stuff out on YouTube because that's our our way of saying, um, okay, we come up with something and go, you know, this is kind of an interesting thing we've run across, and then we try to just put it out there. And some of the stuff is a little maybe not related to flowers at all. It's more related to you know raising vegetables in your garden or something like that. But I guess what we're trying to do is just put stuff out there. To, you know, people have access to YouTube anytime, anywhere, and we try to organize things maybe into some playlists that people can just find things. And what we're trying to do is just relate our experiences with that. And I find that so helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So is it, is it professional? Well. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It's so authentic. It's so realistic. You know, it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of like, you know, the flowers flower business doing the Blair Witch Project, you know, it's kind of like that, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. Now, I find your dynamic, you and Denise, on the YouTube videos always to be so um, charming, and um, I just, I think both of your personalities really come through, and then also, you know, there's a lot of YouTube videos out there to watch on so many different subjects, but what I've always found about your videos in particular is that there's so much actual, real, applicable knowledge that comes through that I can just watch for three minutes or five minutes and walk away with a nugget that even after so many years of farming, I almost always take something from your videos. And I'm like, oh, I never thought of that. Wow, that's so much easier or whatever. So I, yeah, I, I guess that's, that, I mean, that sounds great because that's kind of what we're just trying to do. We, we just look at it as like, you know, the topic may not appeal to somebody on one time, but, but it's like, we've had some videos where we put out like this one on the scythe, you know, using an Austrian scythe to clear brush and grass and stuff like that. And we just did that because it was a pretty cool tool, you know, and we put it out and nobody watched it. <laughs> so we went, Whoa, that one's a dog. And then it was like a year later, it starts taking off, you know, and it's like, What's going on? <laughs> well, I think what it is, is you guys are like ahead of the trends always. I feel like you've been ahead of the trends on pretty much everything ever. And so, you know, <laughs> nobody was into Scythe before, but then suddenly now it's like a big deal. And so, you know, of course people go to YouTube to find out how to use the thing. <laughs> so yeah. that's yeah. what happened. <laughs> 
and that's exactly how I mean I knew you guys through the ASCSG long long ago um, but then one of the reasons I became such a YouTube fan of yours is because of your videos specifically on Korean natural farming, which has mm. been my number one resource. Your videos have been my number one resource for trying to, to crack this code. Not that it's a, it's, I don't think it's actually that complicated Korean natural farming, but for whatever reason, it feels very um, like mad science voodoo, like religion or something. So, <laughs> yeah well there are people yeah I, I have to preface this first of all i've been through no there there are um like the cho uh global natural farming um in south korea they have an education system where there are people from the united states mostly hawaii that have um been through official programs and gotten certification on you know, all the processes on that. So 100% of what I have done myself has been just gleaning stuff such that people like Chris Trump or um, uh, Eric Weinart, which I guess he goes by the name Drake on, on YouTube and, and a, a number of others that, that I, I know have been or are associated with um the uh, Korean natural farming or uh, and, and, and to a lesser degree, a, a different version of it called Jadam. Um, and so what I've tried to do is, is piece that together. And, and at the same time too, I'm trying to keep my mind open because there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people that I think are circling all the same stuff when it comes to the biology of soil. But there's some things that that have always puzzled me. And one of the things that, that I've read before, and these people, you know, who are scientists and they got all kinds of PhDs and all this kind of stuff, they all come back to usually the same thing when somebody asks them, so, well, do you have the microbiology communities defined that are in the soil? And do you, do you know the species? And if you do, what would you say, how much of it do you guys understand at this point? And most of them come back, the microbiologists and then stuff like that, they come back and say, well, we've really only identified maybe 1% or maybe even a little less of, of that's out there. And, you know, in terms of interrelationships, we're even further behind on that. So then I, you know, you start thinking about it, you go, okay. So, you know, there's all these companies out there here, there too, that will sell you bugs in a jug, you know? Yeah. Um, because they, they say that's, you got to get all the mycorrhizal, you got to get all that in, you know, that's the only way, you know, or um, specifically made aerated compost teas or, um, you know, formulas that make the perfect aerated compost tea. And what it all comes down to is, is when you start thinking about it is that if they're admitting that they really only know 1% and don't know the other 99%, um, why would you say what you, you're doing is good and what somebody else is doing is bad? Yeah. And also, how can that you make means, that judgment? Yeah. And there's 99% to discover still. So why can't we have citizen science to like figure it out? Why do we have to rely on big companies? Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, when I, when I think of KNF, it's like, I've heard this said before by various practitioners that they said the KNF is, is kind of like a, a symphony in a sense, and that 
there's all these kinds of parts that are interrelated, but it all ultimately comes back to the base of the indigenous microorganisms in your area. I mean, that's really the point of, of the KNF is, is if you look around the forests of your area, you notice that they don't, they don't need fertilizing. They don't need irrigating. Um, you know, unless something is, is, you know, out of balance, they're rarely ravaged by, you know, insects or disease, you know, in a healthy forest, it continually recycles itself and just goes on its merry way. Um, it seems like the only time that we run into a problem is when we as humans decide that we can be more efficient. <laughs> and so, yeah, we, you know, we want to make it better. <laughs> right, right. And, and, and um, yeah, sometimes, you know, we get caught up in the, I, I've always kind of phrased this this way is, is there's, you got to have humility when you're dealing with this stuff and realize that um, what you don't know is just as important as what you know. I like that. And that seems like a duality that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And maybe it's a philosophical thing, but, um, and Master Cho's who invented the Korean natural farming system that is getting popularized. His, he has a son, his name is Young, Young Sang Cho. And uh, Young Sang Cho invented um, a process that's a little different called Jadam, but it started from the basics of Korean natural farming. And he has an interesting saying is, is that the good and bad are one. So when you think about that statement, you go, well, what does that mean? Well, sure, there are there microbes that, you know, can harm you. Yeah. But in the soil community, when you're thinking about that, is it's the balance and the diversity of what's in that community that keeps things in line. So when you think of that natural forest again, you know, when it's a healthy forest, there may be, you know, phytophthora fungal problems out there and there may be fusarium and verticulum and all those other kinds of you know diseases that go after things but in the community that they're in they're held in a non-pathogenic way you see what i'm saying would make yeah. does that make sense yeah they have a role to play too they wouldn't exist in the world if they didn't have a role to play i think that's yeah. what i always try to find a way to articulate and I'm not very good at it yet, but that, that there are no such things as I'll say bad bugs. I usually am talking about bad bugs. There's no such thing as bad bugs because they all are serving a function in the ecosystem. So if, if your plant is diseased and unhappy, it's their job to come in and clean it up. You know, essentially that's, that's the role of a bug that was tasked to eat something that's unhealthy. Um, so that just means you've, you've got an unbalanced system. It doesn't mean it's a bad bug. It's just a bug doing its job, which is what the fusarium is doing if it's you right. know, at work. Yeah. You're spot on. I mean, insects that eat plants are basically garbage collectors. Yeah, <laughs> they're, getting they're supposed to clean it up. up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and I know that, that you know, people kind of look at that, you know, when you, you look at that whole insect thing and, and they're, you know, it's just, that's just a much more macro version of the same thing. Well, there's communities in the soil 
that are undergoing the same same thing. I mean, if you look under a microscope slide, you can see nematodes scarfing up bacteria. You know, you can see ciliates going after bacteria. And these all, you know, and flagellates and all the things, they all have their role. And um, so when you go and you, you look at these communities, I think we as people have to have a little more humility when we start using KNF techniques and things of that nature and understand that you may not understand exactly why it's doing what it's doing, but more than anything else, when you're using those indigenous microorganisms, the idea is you're introducing a balance back into your micro microbe community on your farm. And that's kind of basically where my thought processes are in trying to be more of a biologic farmer than necessarily an organic farmer. You know, I, I'm not looking for a label, but the, the basics of it, I, I've known for a long time that you got to treat that soil with respect. But what I'm trying, what I'm trying to do is to get a system that um, can mimic nature more closely. Time to take a quick break and get a word from one of our great sponsors that makes this podcast possible. Flowers are reaching a diverse and appreciative customer base today through farmers markets, CSAs, grocery stores, weddings, contactless delivery, and UPIC. This diversity is supported by the strong community of members in the Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers. Since 1988, the association, better known as the ASCFG, has been uniting and educating specialty cut flower growers across the globe, supplying them with accurate and up-to-date information about best practices for both the production and marketing of cut flowers. The ASCFG publishes the only trade magazine in North America dedicated entirely to specialty cut flowers. It also produces a host of classes and conferences on topics ranging from floral design to irrigation. The connections made with growers through an ASCFG membership are priceless. My own flower business would not be where it is today without the generous mentorship of fellow ASCFG members. Visit ASCFG.org to learn more about all the great benefits of becoming a member. Mention no-till flowers when joining and receive a $50 discount on a new membership. All right, let's get back to this great conversation and dig even deeper. I love that. I'm, I've recently had a, um, as I've become more aware of KNF and read more stuff, I've recently had a conversion in my own farmer mentality, the way I look at my farm. I now look at it as I'm trying to feed the soil. I'm trying to grow good, healthy um, soil universe, not necessarily soil. It's all the life that's in the soil, you know, all the, the, all the beings that are down there under our feet. I'm trying to help them and I'm trying to farm them. And, and the flowers are just sort of the, the end product, <laughs> you know, like I used to think of myself as a flower farmer and now I'm trying to be a soil universe farmer, <laughs> I guess. So it sounds like you're, you're doing similar. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's the right, the right tact in a sense, because when you take care of the micro, you know, the macro kind of falls in line behind it in a, in a sense. I mean, let me give you an example of one of the things that, that, you know, seems to afflict a lot of people. And we've, we've had these problems from time to time too, is, is um, aphids, you know, getting into the tunnel yep. and going after spring, spring bulb, like anemones or, or ranunculus or something like that. <laughs> Always the ranunculus. <laughs> yeah. We have looked at that, you know, from time to time 
okay, then you go into the organic, you know, palliative solutions of, you know, insecticidal soap, or maybe even use some kind of combination with, uh, you know, some kind of in organic insecticide, maybe it's a neem oil or, you know, something, right? Yeah, you know, to, to go after pests like that. And, but what we really didn't really realize is, well, aphids are just a reflection of uh, unhealthy, unbalanced plant. But most people, when they look at right. an aphid infestation, they look at their plant and they go, that plant is healthy. Look at it. It's big. It's green. It's, you know, it's, it's just growing. It, and, and, you know, all of a sudden, overnight, here's this problem. Right. We had an infestation one year, a couple of years ago, on um, our anemone crop in our crate house. And we traced it back and we looked at it and said, you know, what really um, – probably caused the problem is, is we used cottonseed meal as a uh, organic amendment into the soil in the crates, you know, thinking that fertilization from that as that would break down would, yeah, so the nitrogen level went out of balance. And when the nitrogen level went out of balance, you had too much free, um, basically, um, free proteins floating right. around in the sap of the plant. And those aphids were going after that. <clears throat> the sugars and, and that that and so well the way to fix that is well what's a plant imbalance have relative to proteins and things like that well it tends to have at a reproductive stage more calcium in its in its um you know mineral form in right. the sap um, making other compounds and so what we did is we used a KNF solution. That was the first time we really went wholesale into it of um, water soluble calcium phosphate. Yeah. And that knocked the aphid. Uh, it took out first, the first application in the first week, knocked it down probably 50, 50, 60%. Wow. They just, they said, no way. The aphids just went, I don't like this. They didn't like want this. it. It was like, ew, it's gross. We don't want <laughs> and, this. And, and, <laughs> and then, you know, we applied it weekly for a couple of weeks after that for the hatchlings that would wow. come out after that. And, and then, and within three weeks, um, that problem was gone. That is amazing. I am, that, that's the kind of, um, uh, case study information I'm looking to gather in general for this podcast or for, for farmers in general, that there are alternatives to, to these commercially made products that the, we can become less dependent on commercial products and find another way to just do this more naturally. And that's like such a primo example. I'm so glad you shared that. That's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, and it's it's a really easy thing to make too. I mean, you can you make it all you need the raw materials for it are take some bones like if you like ribs, yep. you know, or steak bones or something <laughs> like that. Char them on your barbecue until they're kind of crispy. Bust them up in a jar. Put in ten parts to one part, ten parts of vinegar, you know, to to one part of the bones. Let it sit for a week, and what comes out in in that solution is a, a phosphate um, calcium kind of ion type thing. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's cheap. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. And the fact that you got to use something that was the plant could absorb it, synthesize it into its system, and then 
created its own natural defense. Instead of having to apply something that just hung out on the surface of a plant, it was sort of a secondary element to the plant. Um, I think it's fantastic when you can actually get the plant to change itself to be um, a stronger element. So that's fantastic. Yeah, and the thing is, is you don't use much of it either. And that's the other thing that, that I find fascinating about Korean natural farming is, is who is it? I think it was Steve Solomon. I read in one of his books, he called it the Samoa um, uh, syndrome. You oh. know, if a little good, Samoa must be better, oh. right? <laughs> that's kind of a really, maybe that's a bad thing to say in this day and age, but I, I, no offense to anybody from Samoa. Yeah. Oh, right. No, no, it's, it's just, a, but I agree. It's always, it feels like, oh, well, if this is a good thing, I should just add more. I think that's how I got into such a pickle with my farm is that I was using a lot of amendments in the soil. And it was one of the questions I had for you, whether you still use actual amendments in the soil. I was getting soil tests. I would send them off. Uh, I would get the test results back and then send my test results to my, um, my uh, amendment guy who works for Fertrell, which is an organic um, company that they, they only right. do organic amendments. So I was thinking like, oh, this is great. I, I've, everything I'm using is organic. So... I think I had this really terrible mentality of, well, he said apply 10 pounds, I'll, I'll put 15 pounds on because, you know, more <laughs> is better, more is always better. And now I've, um, I, I've slowly changed my mindset and realized that I'm probably just uh, trying to force my will onto my farm. And so um, I've dialed that way back because what's happened is my soil is too rich and I'm having pest issues occasionally because the plants are just growing too quickly and it's, it's not the right stage for them. So, so do you right. still use actual amendments like cottonseed meal or anything? Do you put stuff in the soil or do you rely more on like KNF, you know, applications? Um, yeah, we have uh, pretty much changed and dropped buying uh, amendments that would be, uh, you know, things like feather meal or, or any, yeah. any of the kind of meals or anything of that nature. Um, and the reason we did that is because this is kind of started from following some of Elaine Ingham's work. Um, she made some interesting comments. I think in some videos I watched that, that in reality, unless your base soil is missing you know, the parent of the soil is missing a particular element, like maybe there's no selenium in it or, or something of that nature. Um, the microbiology, if your microbiology is strong and balanced with good plant exudates in, in, in the soil, um, keeping that biology going and that community going, that between the fungal and the bacterial that the plants will be able to obtain most of the minerals that it, that it needs. Um, the key to it is having a vibrant, active, balanced soil microbiology where most people um, who, who, particularly if you're till, don't. Right. Um, so if you have, you know, if, if, if one of your management practices, and I'm not making any judgments here on any of this stuff because you know, I'm just saying from my own experiences, but um, repeated tillage tends to keep your soil more in a, in a bacterially dominated um, and you lose a lot of diversity. 
And it's the fungi, the oxalic acids and the things of that nature that, that the beneficial fungi um, will exude that helps break down minerals um, from the parent soil of, of, of the rock itself and get that into plant available form. So when you, when you, that, that's one of the biggest um, drops in fertility and in soils that have been, you know, overly worked. Um, that's part of the problem is, is the fungus has dropped. So where we are, are doing is what we're trying to do is we are 100% no till. I don't, I don't till anything anymore. As a matter of fact, if you know anybody who wants to buy an L3430 Kubota <laughs> tracker with a tiller, I'll be glad to make them a deal. <laughs> they um, need to buy mine first. I'm trying to sell my tiller. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, we, we've gone away from adding uh, mineral amendments because it, it isn't really necessary. And if we need extra nitrogen, um, typically it's because the biology isn't working um, to its optimum and it could be extra nitrogen could be a time of the year thing. Um, if a temperature soil is too cool, maybe the back, you know, the community isn't as active as it needs to be. You, I, I particularly run into problems like with snapdragons in, in an um, overwintered in uh, a tunnel that I want for early spring bloom. And this would be a non-heated tunnel. So the soil itself, in the first six inches pretty much reflects what's going on, you know, um, in general, it stays about 40 degrees. So it kind of reflects somewhat what's going on outside the tunnel. The plants, when we plant our snapdragons, as an example, we'll be planting them right around Thanksgiving this year and they'll grow slowly for about a month. And then particularly when they get into December and January, they're pretty much going to stop growing until the light levels come back up. And the, so the biology isn't working as well. And so the photosynthesis isn't working as well. And so what you'll notice on snapdragons is you can get a common thing happen is you get an iron deficiency. And so you'll start to see those yellow leaves at the, uh, at the, particularly at the very tip. I've seen that. And that's, you know, people's natural reactions. Oh, add chelated iron, you know, or right. something like that to, to get that straightened out. But you don't really need to do that. Um, you just need to kind of let the microbiology come back. And, and the reason I'm giving this example is, is that as soon as that microbiology comes back in, into full gear by mid-February, that iron deficiency thing, boom, gone. Right. And the plant takes off and starts growing. And the reason I'm giving this example of it is, is, is because that's an example of biology supplying something the plant needs. And that, that one is really obvious. And you can get that same thing, that same problem with nitrogen fixing, fixation and availability. Um, if your biology is good, you shouldn't really need too much uh, of, of adding any kind of amendment. And that's kind of where we're trying to get to. But that's the key. It's always the balance. The biology's got to be good. So if our biology isn't right, we're going to have to supplement with something. And I think that's you know? a big, a big hiccup. A lot of people as they get into no-till farming, in particular, which I this is speaking from personal experiences. I thought that as soon as I stopped tilling, the biology would be there, or maybe I didn't even realize I was looking for biology. But I thought that hey, I'll stop tilling, and everybody says no-till's fantastic, and it's going to be great and hunky-dory from here. And then I didn't 
really understand that it does take the biology a long time to come back um, and that you have to be patient for it because otherwise you're going to mess up the system in the meantime trying to fuss with it. You know, it's, it's just a patient game of waiting um, till right. it, it renews itself. Yeah, but there's ways to increase the biology, which I think is why I've gravitated towards KNF because it seems like it's increasing the biology faster than it maybe would be otherwise. Um, does that seem to be right. your experience? Yeah, I mean, that, this is where I'm, I'm starting to see a lot of similarities between, uh, do you know, you, you might have heard of Dr. David Johnson from New Mexico State in uh, his bioreactor, him and his wife developed. Um, yes. But his work is, uh, is, is aimed at restoring a lot of rangeland work. Um, and uh, his, his point is he needed to develop an inoculant. And so his system is, is not to apply compost. He makes this compost in, in a, uh, what he calls a bioreactor, but it's basically a slow, very low thermophilic type compost that takes a year for it to build its communities up to its maximum. And then he uses very small amounts of that in, a, in an extract that is then spread on his, either the seeds that get planted into a field or the field itself, you know, in terms of like a soil injection. And what he has done on that is to restore the biology because his point is, is, is this, is that if you, if the biology is destroyed, there may be some remnants of it left, but it'll be a very hard slog for it to come back just by applying compost. Yeah. You know, uh, and so that's kind of the approach that, that I'm thinking about is KNF is kind of a same version of the same thing, although he's not, they're not using, you know, a compost. What they're trying to do is use um, something like a substrate such as rice to, capture the spores and you know of, of funguses and things of that nature that are happening at that interface usually between where leaf litter ends and soil begins in a, in a nice natural forested area uh, I guess they can call that leaf mold soil yeah. or yeah uh, but the idea is, is is you're creating a capture of of that right and that diversity then you're bringing back through creating the IMO processes when you're going through, if you think, um, I don't know how much the listeners will be familiar with this, but the basics of, of Korean natural farming is first you capture the indigenous microorganisms that are in a, uh, an ecosystem that is nearest to you and, and makes, you know, and is healthy. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's the and, problem. And, <laughs> Yeah. For me, at least well, here in the city, I can't find, I can't find a healthy place. I've tried to capture, um, I've tried to do IMO um, four times now and I can't, I can't find any, which is really yeah. heartbreaking. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, particularly if you're in an area where there's been a lot of herbicides and pesticides and, you know, other kinds of industrial stuff that's, that's out there. But here, here's one thing that you, you can do. And this is, I, I stumbled across this and just a part of um, Young Sheng Cho's book on uh, Jadam is he, he just had this little paragraph because he, 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 his big thing was going out and using leaf mold soil yeah, and kind of bypassing the, ri the rice, um, you know, capture technique and all that. And his, his, his point was if you have access to this leaf mold soil, all the biology is right in there. 
it's already in there. And so instead of transferring it from that into a rice inoc, you know, substrate to then inoculate and, you know, carry through the other steps, his, his point is it's a simpler process to just capture that soil right there. Okay. But, but if you don't have access to it, he says, Hey, there's just a simple thing you can do is use good quality cut grass, maybe a mixture of mostly green and it particularly works well in the spring oh. and, and pile it up maybe 10 inches. Okay? Yeah. And uh, on top of soil, that's reasonably good, not on, you know, something that's concrete, right? but on reasonably good soil and, and then keep it moist and then keep it covered and kind of a shaded, you know, put it like a, um, a breathable something over it that would, you know, keep the UV from pounding the heck out of it out, but it can still breathe. And then over time, in three weeks to a month, depending on how the, you know, active things are, that soil right at the interface between what's left of that composting pile on top, that soil has a lot of the same biology that um, was in, you know, in, in the natural area. Because his idea oh. is, is that wild grasses, but particularly, you know, a diversity of them, don't yeah. You know, so when you say grasses, that could also be some broadleaf weeds, you know, things of that nature. But it's like if you're going out and you're cutting a relatively, say, say it's a hay field that is relatively healthy, you know, um, and it hasn't been chemically applied and all that kind of stuff. You're going out and getting healthy grass and you're doing that. That grass on it has the microbes that will um, spores and things of that nature that will probably um, with the combination of what's already in your soil give you a, a simulated version of it of leaf mold soil and it does work yeah it's kind of like creating lab where you're trying to use the rice rinse water to just like naturally collect um i don't even know what it is exactly that that's trying to get collected out of the air to be honest with lab i just make lab but it's the same thing it's just creating this space in which they want to congregate isn't that that sounds like it's about the same yeah yeah. See, a lot of those, a lot of those spores, they're they're out there, you know, from a fungal standpoint or even yeah. uh, actinomycete standpoint. Um, bacteria is a little different, but the bacteria would be um, on the surface of the grass blades and things of that nature. So you're creating an environment, kind of a fake. Yeah. <laughs> a f yeah. You know, fake a out spa. a little bit. But you, it's a but, spa for the spores. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I've done that and looked at under the microscope and it's pretty good. Um, I've compared it to some of, um, I've gone out and some of my ranch farm friends, neighbors, and uh, took some samples of under areas where they just left, you know, trees and kind of that, that sort of thing and taken a look at the soil there. And it's, it's not terribly much different. Um, what, what I'm doing using that grass technique versus that, um, you know, actually going and looking at some of the older soil, uh, there's still quite a bit of diversity into it. And oh, that's exciting. So I didn't know that. You, you could, you know, and in the Jadam book, he says, okay, if you make, if you then take that leaf mold soil, that's what he calls it, but it's the same thing as if you did it yourself, the right? Grass. With the grass. Yeah. You can make a, um, um, an extract out of it or a microbiologic solution that he calls JMS, which is Jadam microbiologic or microorganism solution. And what it basically is, is you're adding a starch 
for some boiled potato. Mm, You're okay. putting in a little little sea salt to you know for minerals, very low amount, maybe one gram per liter. Uh, uh, so like if you took a four gallon bucket, you'd put 15 grams of sea salt in it. And you'd put 30 grams of boiled potato in it and 15 to 20 grams of this soil and just kind of swish it around in, in this bucket of water and you can just let it sit at ambient temperature and the biology will start to replicate in it as long as there's enough oxygen and food. So you watch this thing and then within, depending on your temperature zone, you know, if you're in summertime, like where you guys are at, you probably within 30 hours to oh. or so, 30, 30 hours to 40 hours, it would reach its maximum before the oxygen basically would turn it totally anaerobic. Okay. And it's at that point that he calls it, it's ready for inoculating your soil. You know, you could apply it as a soil drench and it's pretty diverse. I've looked at it and there's lots of protozoas in it, very few ciliates. Um, oh, wow. Uh, lots of all kinds of bacteria from bacillus type to, to round coxite type and all that. I'm not an expert on this, so I can't make any judgment of what's good or bad other than you can just see that there's a lot of diversity. Wow. And I've used that solution a number of times directly on as a drench on soil. And the first thing that I notice by using that um, several times is that the water absorption capacity changes dramatically. It's much better. Wow. So it does make a difference. Now, and, and he also has a way of saying, okay, if you can't use it or you don't, you don't have the right time to use it on your actual soil directly as a drench, you can then start the IMO process and basically make uh, using wheat bran, you know, you know, in the yeah. process of K and F, how they, they basically start selecting for, you know, fungal dominated. You just, you can use, instead of using um, the IMO you captured in the rice um, yeah. process, you could use the JMS at that stage, mix it with wheat bran and start to do the same process. Same thing. Oh, I'm yeah. totally going to try uh, that it, because I've struggled it, so it much. It may not be, you know, from there, there's some discussions um, between the KNF people and the Jadam people uh, that the diversity of when you capture using the traditional method, the feeling is the diversity is higher. Right. Um, because a lot of what the people are doing when they're making IMO3 is they're using a variety of captures from different areas, whereas JMS is typically not. You know, it's typically you're, you know, pretty One localized. Spot. Yeah. But it works if it's somebody like me, if there's somebody in a more urban area where there just really isn't any sort of old stand of trees that have been left to not, you know, there in Philadelphia where I am, there, there, there is no natural spot left, frankly. And so it's been so hard to catch IMO um, that's healthy and diverse and active and I feel like this this concept um, is a little more approachable, at least. And I think that's what's the challenge with KNF for me has been that it feels intimidating from time to time. IMO felt very intimidating <laughs> to me, <laughs> and so I you, like. You know what the hardest part for me on 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 KNF on the on the IMO thing was cooking the rice right. I'm just not a very good rice cooker. <laughs> It's either, you know, it's too wet, too dry, too something, you know, and it's like, okay. <laughs> Let's talk about one of the things that I've really adopted that you 
taught me through YouTube um, is your maintenance spray that you do. And I, I had been having a lot of issues with um, fusarium and other things in my spring, my cool annuals, the cool annuals that I would plant. I had a lot of um, disease issues. And so I went looking for some alternatives to uh, commercial applications and stumbled upon LAB, first of all, so lactic acid bacteria, um, which is a KNF thing, and then went to your YouTube to watch the LAB um, <laughs> uh, videos. And then from there, stumbled on the maintenance spray video. And since then, I've been using your maintenance spray. And I have to tell you, like, it's, it's phenomenal. The health of my plants using the maintenance spray is exponentially better. And so I wanted to talk yeah. about your maintenance spray a little bit, uh, figure out first, can you tell listeners what it is? And then second, did you develop that like kind of a hundred percent on your own? And also is that something you only apply when the plants are younger and then you move into some other foliar application later on? So let's, let's talk maintenance spray, shall we? <laughs> oh, sure. Okay. The um, first of all, no, I didn't invent this at all. <laughs> this is this is a straight classic um, Dr. Cho's work in in South Korea, and 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 has adapted um, a lot through the KNF Hawaii uh, people. I think Drake might have been the one that coined it as a maintenance solution okay. um, because it's pretty much a universal can be applied at. Uh, basically all stages of the plant, except, you know, when the plant goes into senescence, you don't bother with it. But, um, and, and the, the point of it is, it's got um, antipathogenic, which is using what is called OHN, which is Oriental Herbal Nutrient. And that is probably the most expensive mixture of the whole KNF um, series. And the reason why is, is, is because it's an alcoholic extract um, that takes almost three months to make. Um, it's combining six different herbs. There's garlic, there's ginger, um, cinnamon, and uh, angelica. And I forgot what the last one yeah, was. Yeah, I forget but, what the last one but is. But anyway, they're, they're all like, um, they're all having a version of uh, antipathogenic uh, protections for plants and there's a youtube video on it's a great one chris trump's done on on that so if anybody wants to look up just look up chris trump on youtube and and uh he he has some great videos on explaining on exactly how to make it so i won't go too far into that but that's an alcoholic extract that's used for pathogenics um, in terms of it's a preventative. Okay, so if something's already got it, like it's, you know, it's really got a bad case of it, the chances are you're not going to turn a plant around um, that has a, a bad case of something because it's, it's already infected. So you got to think of this as like boosting the immunity system of the plant. The next thing that's in it is called brown rice vinegar, but you can use apple cider vinegar if you can't find it. Just organic apple cider vinegar, you know, brags or even making your own. And you're using that. Um, that actually in a low concentration, when we're talking about low, we're talking about using eight milliliters per gallon of water, which isn't much. Yeah. Um, and the OHN, you're using four milliliters per gallon. 
And the, the, at eight milliliters for the, going back to the, the vinegar, what it does is it actually helps the transition between the membranes of the leaves of material that you're, that you're applying to make the transition uh, into the leaves itself. So it's somewhat not necessarily a surfactant, that isn't really the right word for it, but it creates an, an ion situation that allows an easier transfer of, of material into the leaf itself. It's not breaking down the leaf, it's not, you know, at high concentrations, vinegar is an herbicide. But at low concentrations, such as we're talking about here, it's actually a beneficial in helping that plant absorb uh, on a foliar basis. The second, or the third thing is what's called fermented plant juice. And this is also applied at eight milliliters per gallon. Um, and what a fermented plant juice is, is it's an osmo, it's not really fermented in the traditional way that people think when you think fermented, you think pickles or you think, you know, like, oh, you made wine or, uh, you know, or, or kimchi or sauerkraut or something. It's not, it's not that process at all. It's an osmotic extraction using um, the affinity of brown sugar for moisture water and using that to extract from plant tissues, um, basically plant sap that contains, um, because uh, what you're doing is you're picking the growth tips, the typical like six inches of a healthy plant that's in a, in a very good growth spurt. Um, and you're taking those tips um, off, of the, off of the plant and you're crushing them up as gently as you can and mixing it with a one-to-one -one ratio of brown sugar. And that sits for about a week when you're making it. Again, there's good videos on that. Chris Trump has also done super videos on that um, and when you look at that it's um, what it's doing over time is it's pulling the those materials those biostimulants those auxins and gibberellins and all the other enzymes and things that are in that growth tip into that solution that sugar solution and that's um, a biostimulant so I, that's um, what you Sure. Can, can I ask you a quick question that I, I'm curious about? I read in, um, I just got Nigel Palmer's new book, um, The Regenerative Grower's Guide to Garden Amendments, and I was reading through it. And he was talking about yeah. basically making, I don't think he even called it FPJ in there, but uh, what I took away from it was this concept of making FPJ with the plant, you with the crop itself. So if you wanted to treat or not treat, but, you know, spray dahlias, for instance, then you would take, you would make FPJ with dahlia foliage. Have you ever done that? Like, is that, is that a crazy idea? I thought it was a cool idea. Well, part <laughs> of what, yeah, I, I read his book and I think what, uh, I may be off, but um, what you're describing is somewhat of using, th there's another process and this is part in Jadam. Um, and he's using it as um, a foliar fertilization. Yeah. Okay. So um, yes, any any healthy plant, you 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 could use the growth tips from those plants to act as a biostimulant. Um, a JLF or Janam liquid fertilizer. What they're doing with that is they're taking the same idea. 
the plant itself, like if you're, you know, raising dahlias, like you say, and you've got some scrap dahlias that are still green, you cut off the stems or you cut off the blooms, you put it in a bucket, you mix it with, uh, or you, you add water to it. Uh, you know, it's like it's half of a residue and half with the right. rest of it's the buckets filled up. You throw in some leaf mold soil or compost soil, you know, like we talked about. Right. And you just let that sit for, you know, it depends on what it is, but usually a couple of three months. But if it sits even longer, it's better. And, and that is an excellent fertilizer. And it okay. does have some of the same biostimulants in it, but it's gone through an anaerobic bacterial decomposition. So it may not, those, those biostimulants um, that were um, there may not be in the same form, but okay. it doesn't, but what is there and it was beneficial to your plants is the minerals that the plant captured to grow as best as it can. So if you took, like you're saying, those things from a healthy plant and then used, you know, did that process, that JLF process, that would make a good fertilizer um, for the plant itself. And okay. you could either apply that as, you know, through your drip system, as a drench on your soil, or as a foliar feed. But it wouldn't necessarily be the right component for your maintenance spray, for the maintenance spray recipe. No, the maintenance spray is... Stimulant. Okay. Right. It, because what, you're, what you got to remember is, is when you're doing the FPJ extract, you're not actually doing a fermentation and breakdown of it. You're basically oh, yeah. osmotically extracting these things and then suspending them, you know, in a high sugar solution so that it's stable and it won't... Um, decompose. It's it's like you're it's like right. you're almost making a form of molasses that, by the right. way, also has all this other good stuff in it. Right. <laughs> yeah. And 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 so it's the the maintenance solution to get to wrap this long thing up. I'm apologize here, but the maintenance no, solution itself <laughs> is 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 going to be eight milliliters of the FPJ, eight milliliters of the brown rice vinegar or apple cider vinegar, and four milliliters of the OHN. That is kind of a universal thing. It has a biostimulant. It has the ability to move that stimulant into the plant better. And it has an antipathogenic that can also be moved into the plant better with the, with the vinegar. So the vinegar acts as a mechanism to help move those other two into the plant more effectively. And do you put sea salt water in there or seawater sea slash sea salt water? Sea... <laughs> C- Fermented seawater is, is one thing that we've used here on the farm, and it's it's basically a mineral jolt. At the same time, it's helping um, using by applying LAB or applying um, something that um, would help maybe um, you know keep something at bay, like a mildew or something like that. Um, it, it it does have strong antipathogenic type um, properties to it. And that LAB is also going to help move those minerals um, in into the plant. So a fermented seawater is also kind of a little bit of a misnomer because you're actually not fermenting it. What you're doing is you're breeding up, you're culturing up an LAB solution uh, in, in one gallon of water with um, some FPJ, I forgot the exact measurements on it, but, uh, and, and so the sea salt is put in at a dilution of one to 30. So for a gallon of water, 
you'll basically put in um, a little less than four grams of, of uh, sea salt. The easiest way to do it is take three quarters of a teaspoon of sea salt in a gallon. That's pretty close to assuming it's a fine grind, you know, yeah. and that, that's pretty much it. And, and then you're putting in, um, I think it was four milliliters of FPJ, the biostimulant side of it. And then you're putting in, I think I, I'm going to be off on this, but I think no, I'm amazed, seven, you know, all of this seven, off the top seven of or your eight head. milliliters. I can't remember exactly of seven or eight milliliters of, um, LAB. And you could just put that in a container, you know, after you mix it up, uh, put it in an area that doesn't, you know, isn't cold, cold, but room temperature. Um, put like a paper towel over the top so nothing flies into it and just let it sit for about 24 hours. And what you'll notice is the solution will turn from a kind of a clear amber to um, the next day it'll be a nice cloudy and it'll have a slightly yeasty, not yeasty smell, but kind of an earthy, you know, the LAB smell to it and that it's ready to go and you can apply that directly without diluting oh so wow it, it's that your, fast i didn't know it was that yeah, fast that fast 24 hours with oh that. wow very fast okay and there's some up, upgrades you can do to that to maybe but you know maybe i'm getting off the course here but you, there are some people who will then take young spring grass when they're doing this in the summertime because they're trying to boost their um this is particularly useful on greens. It helps okay. green things up really fast. So if like you're a lettuce or you're growing grasses or something or of that nature. Or scented geraniums, perhaps. Or scented <laughs> geraniums. Yeah, something like that. It really works well because it gets those minerals into it. And sometimes what people do is they'll take a little bit of um, really aggressively growing healthy grass and run it uh, in a blender and maybe put another like... Um, you know, put it into like a T-ball or something when you're making it and let it um, also uh, put that into the LAB uh, fermented seawater thing and just let that ferment with it because it adds a, a bit of extra biology to it. Wow. I didn't know that. So when are you going to write yeah. a book, a recipe book for flower farmers on this topic? Oh. It sounds like you really should. We need stuff that's really specific to flower farmers because I feel well, like I, it's a little... I, it's, Right now, it's like, I, I love all the information out there, but it's really not relevant, not, not that it's not relevant, but it, it, it's not dialed in to flower farmers. <laughs> so. Well, and a lot of it isn't, I mean, that, that's been one of the biggest problems I found with the KNF is, is the, the language transa translation, and um, there's some people who, who are really good at it. You know, I go back to the, the guys in Hawaii because they've done a lot of training on it. Master Cho went over there a number of times and trained people there. And then there's a number of people in Hawaii that that um, went over to Korea and got training on it. So uh, but the problem is, is, well, that's tropical. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I <laughs> feel know, like that when that, I watch Chris's channel, it's like, well, this is great, but you're growing like macadamias and stuff. So. Yeah. So, but interestingly now, he's in, I think he's outside of Boise now. Um, oh, he is? Because he, he's, yeah, he's moved to the mainland a few years ago. And oh. um, he runs his own company now. It's called uh, Re, Regen.co or something like that. I, I don't know. I'm, no, I'm getting the name totally wrong. But anyway, he, he's, um, yeah, he's actually working with some people over there in Idaho, I guess, uh, at a, and some kind of experimental farm. Um, I can tell I'm probably speaking totally out of turn here. No, but, I, um, I didn't know that. 
Yeah, trying trying to you know get the translation of things you know that what's the equivalent um, on a more temperate climate is is kind of an interesting challenge. Yeah, and yeah. That's kind of where I've I've been just kind of fooling around on my my own trying to figure this out. Do you have any um, recipes that are specific to flowers that you that you've kind of dialed in more, or are you still going with all the same general broad? strokes of KNF and and just seeing how it works. I'm still at the experimental stage. So I'm still using, you know, the basic formulas, but a lot of it has to do with more what stage is the plant at, you know, and then backing things off. You really got to have a good power of observation when you're doing this. You got to, you got, you know, it's not just like, oh, on week three, I apply this and I walk away and I come back on week six and do this. There is no recipe. And that's, I don't know, maybe it's an American thing or something, but it kind of <laughs> seems like people just want, they want the answers in the back of the book. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. Exactly. It, I mean, when I was going to school, I don't know if it's the same, maybe, you know, in this day and age and the younger people, when I was going to school, it's like math. Well, they had all of the answers to the odd problems in the back of the book, you yes. know, and uh there is no, that's the thing with this is right, uh, it's right. really to the context of where you are and what you're facing and what your biologic situation is on your farm, you know, so what you do and how much you do it is going to be kind of dependent um, with anything just rotely routinely following it, say as an example, um, using fermented seawater. Well, I used it once. Great. I'll use it every week. Well, <clears throat> it'll have a benefit till maybe you might drive an imbalance situation. Like right. you can't keep using LAB all the time because this is a very powerful thing. And it, it does help in many cases, like with powdery mildew, it'll help with that. Or it can help loosen up soil um, if it's drenched in and, you know, really wet it in. But if you're always applying LAB, you're going to throw your microbiology community out of balance. And so you got to, these, this is the thing that where I'm at, where I'm working is trying to figure out and saying, watching the plants, watching what's going on and trying to figure out, you know, when the right time is to use things. And ultimately in the end for most natural farmers, I'm kind of come to the conclusion that, you know, the tools are great. But, you know, if you're always carrying around a hammer, everything looks like a nail and you don't want to, you know, you don't right. want to be in that mode. You got to, you got to, right. you got to start, you know, put it into context. Some years you may use something and, and in some crops, you know, some years you don't. And right. so it's kind of, you got to look at it as, as a tool chest and you got to yeah. kind of, you know, use your judgment. It's like it's like I was saying earlier. Like there, it, there is such a thing as too much as too much of a good thing, you know. In that I was used to be applying all these amendments and actually threw my soil way out of whack, even though they were organic amendments, and it seemed like a good thing. So it sounds like with K and F, you can do the exact same thing. Which I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned that because I may be one of those newer um, natural farmers who just is like all in and throw, you know, throw everything on all the time and. And I didn't realize that you could really overdo it. So that's, that makes perfect sense. And I don't know why I didn't think of it before. <laughs> yeah, because if you look at, you know, particularly like LAB and um, that, that sort of thing, I mean, you're, that's a specific type of um, 
biology you're throwing at something and you're usually, you know, throwing it at heavy, heavy at something because there's a definite out of balance situation. And you're trying to use that as the uh, policeman, so to speak. That's what Drake calls it. And I think it's a good term um, to kind of bring things back. But once it's back, you don't keep applying it. Right. Right. So, you know, and, and it's like anything, you know, medicine's the same way, you know, well, you know, one Advil got rid of my aches and pains. What does a bottle do? <laughs> <laughs> and you also just become sort of immune, not immune to Advil per se, but things become, they build up a tolerance and then you don't, right. it's like my cup of coffee. It's like, I used to drink one cup of coffee, but now I need like four for the same ratio. So well, it gets so, worse yeah. when you get older. Oh, great. Thanks, Tony. <laughs> Thanks for that. I appreciate it. I, I really need that. I feel the aches and pains this year for yeah, sure. Yeah, we don't measure in cups anymore. We measure it in pots. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll be joining you in that department soon. So um, well great. I think we should wrap this up. But I am I am I loved this conversation. I thank you so much for all your knowledge. One of the things that I really appreciate most about your approach to this is you're so scientific and formulaic um, in a good way and experimental as well. So it feels it feels to me more like um, something less voodoo-y and, <laughs> and more systemized, which I really appreciate. And uh, well, one, yeah, yeah, one of the things, just, just as a caveat, and, and I can understand, you know, people who maybe have much larger farms and really dang important that everything, you know, is produces, produces because there's all kinds of things depending on it. And I, I, I'm not you know, advocating because I'm, I'm learning this stuff myself as it's like, Oh, this is a system that will save you from whatever. Okay. This is a natural system. And I think what people um, got to realize is, is that um, it may, I have the luxury being smaller to run experiments and take a look at something. And if somebody's in a massive production mode that says, no, the importance is I've got 15 acres of these dahlias and they have to go, you know, boom, ba boom, ba boom. And so if I get a bug problem, I don't have time to sit around and experiment to see what level of water solume, soluble calcium phosphate that I'm <laughs> going to apply or how often, you know, and I, I'm just going to take that insecticidal soap or whatever it is I'm going to use and bam, it's gone. Or I'm going to buy you know, or, or, you know, it's not saying that, Hey, integrated uh, pest management isn't necessary. You could just do this. I'm, you know, yeah, I think the point I, I'm rambling about here is trying to say that there are many different ways of going about these things. Yeah. And maybe it ends up being a combination of a lot of things. You know, that, that a pure K and F approach maybe isn't necessarily you know what somebody needs but part of it works pretty well you know yeah. even chris trump on his macadamia nut orchard they modified what knf was about they you know in knf they weren't using uh liquid imo sprays that's something him and master cho worked up because there was no way he could make enough you know actual physical compost to spread on 750 acres yeah 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 <laughs> Well, it's just about having lots of tools in that tool chest you talked about. You have to you have to know that there's there's a hammer and there's a screwdriver and a, a vice grip and you know all the things are in there and and just know the right tool for the right situation. So yeah, yeah, 
I love it. I, I have learned so much through this um, interview and I've learned so much through you over the years. And I just thank you for being so generous with your knowledge, Tony, and also for your continued um, sort of pioneering of experimentation. I think that gives me a lot of courage to try more experimentation on my own, which is making me a better farmer. And I'm, I'm glad that you're, you're out there leading the way. So thank you for being here. I really, really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate that. You know, and this is, I, I enjoy doing this today and, and, and I hope it helps somebody, you know, and, um, you know, I think you know, the more we can get closer to figuring out how to, you know, run these biologic systems on our farms, I think we're, we're all going to be in better shape. Yeah, definitely. I think we really, every farmer out there, regardless of whether they're flowers or vegetables or, or ranchers or whatever, you know, it's our, it's our imperative job at this point to try to heal some of the earth. Like, there's many pieces to the puzzle of bringing us back from the um, brink of the sixth um, extinction, but we have a, we have a very vital role to play. <laughs> and I think it's so important for farmers to rethink the traditional systems because that's part of how we got here in the first place. So I um, hopefully, yeah, hopefully we can change the world one acre at a time, basically. So yeah I, that's a great great goal yeah <laughs> hey think big work small yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the way I like to roll in life <laughs> so all right Tony thank you so much um and uh, I can't wait to talk to you again sometime okay take care Today's episode of No-Till Flowers was produced by Ginny Love of Love and Fresh Flowers with support from No-Till Growers Special thank you to Nikolai Fox for the theme music, at Nikolai Fox on Instagram. Thank you to the Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash no-tillgrowers for making this show possible. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you are getting it and leave a review. That always helps us out. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode of No-Till Flowers.